0: Our scripture passage this morning is Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But other mocking said, they are filled with new wine.
1: Melanie, you went through the gauntlet really well. (laughs) When they stack up those names like that, it's like you just want to make it through without stumbling. You did great. Do you realize that in the last 15 years, $500 billion has been spent on church growth materials? And yet, in the same time, uh, the percentage of evangelicals has decreased. So the strategy's not really working. You know, you have this investment of 500 billion, and your return on investment is what? Nothing. I think we need a new plan. And thankfully, we have one here. If you remember last week, we looked at chapter one. Jesus is calling his church to be on mission or to be witnesses. And we we found out that the actual message of the witness is the gospel, which is just that, uh, that God, who is both holy and just, is also, thankfully, merciful and kind. And he has given to us a Savior uh, who has borne our sins in shame, that by faith we can, we can repent and be reconciled to him. Now, this was the message that Jesus taught, and this was the message that the apostles took. But you can imagine with me, I mean, just the daunting nature of this task. I mean, they were 12 nobodies. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, they were unlearned. I mean, I mean they, they were about to walk into a world of strong paganism, the might of the military of Rome. Uh, they had illiteracy. There was poverty. I mean, they had no financial resources. They had no ministry connections. They, they had no training. They had no smartphones to get around. I mean, think about it. They were about to go into the world with a message, and they did. And they witnessed, and people believed, and the church grew. I mean, we're all here, aren't we? I, I, I mean, the Christian church is the largest religion of the world. What happened? I, I mean, how, what changed that would bring, think about it, 12 men, 120 disciples in the upper room, and we are here 2,000 years later still talking about this. Well, of course, the answer is in chapter 2, of Acts, I mean, chapter 2, it, it explodes with excitement. You know, what happens is God's Spirit descends. God's Spirit changes us. I mean, Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. You're going to receive that power. I mean, it happened. The promise was fulfilled. The promise was answered. If you think about it, you know, God's Spirit descended, in a way like the Son. The Son descended, but He descended in the flesh to dwell among us. The Spirit descends in power to dwell within us. That's the change. This unrepeatable, unique event unleashed the church, and it changed the world. So today I just want to talk briefly on the power to be a witness And I'm so thankful that Steve is going to come and finish the second half on what it is to be a witness, but on the other side of the world. So we're called uh, to wait for the power of the Spirit, to be witnesses to the ends of the world, and we brought one back from the end of the world to share with us how the mission and the ministry is going in East Asia. But let me just draw out three simple points I think that you'll have from this text. Unfortunately... I made a promise that I would dive deeper into it last week, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just confess right now I will not be able to do that. But hopefully it will be clear, and we'll circle back with it some point in time. But three things from this text is number one, I think the coming of God's Spirit inaugurates a new age. It inaugurates a new age. Look with me in verse 1, because you really have the timing of the event here. When he says, look at 1, he says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 120 gathered in Jerusalem. But but Luke wants us to know that when the day of Pentecost came, now Pentecost, the word itself only means 50 or 50th. And, And it's really one of the big three feasts of Israel. And it's celebrated 50 days after Passover. And on this feast, they would offer the first fruits of the coming harvest to God. In other words, because of the first fruits, we know that there's going to be a huge harvest. We're giving you the first fruits of that in thankfulness and joy. Now, the reason that God chose to bring the Spirit on Pentecost is because when Peter preaches... 3,000 souls are saved. 3,000 people are convicted of their sin. They repent and believe. It's as if it's the first fruits. It's the first fruits of a massive harvest that God is going to do in the world. So do you see the parallel? That the the, the people were offering their first fruits to God, the the gifts that God has given to them, and, and then we see the same thing on a spiritual level where people now begin to enter the kingdom of God. God is saying, I will gather a huge harvest This is just the first fruits. But God also had the Spirit descend on Pentecost because Pentecost was also a day that they celebrated the giving of the law, that that God gave the law to Israel on Mount Sinai. But remember this, the law itself, remember, could never save. It reveals the glory of God. It reveals the nature of our sin. It reveals that we need a savior, but it can't save. In contrast to that, the Spirit comes and the Spirit now will save, the Spirit now will regenerate and change people. You know, back in back in 1919, if you're a student of U.S. history, you remember that they ratified the 18th Amendment, which was the prohibition of alcohol, the production, the consumption of it. And, and their intention, of course, was was to try to clean up the just the societal issues that can come from alcoholism. It, it was it was with good intent, but you know what? It didn't work. It was called the Grand Experiment, but it failed. People wanted alcohol. They went to speakeasies. They went to bootleggers. They went to places that produced it. Well, in 1933, the 21st Amendment repealed that 18th Amendment. Why? Well, laws can't change people. They constrain people, maybe, but they can't change people. The coming of the Spirit actually changes people. He takes out a heart of stone, and he begins to change people. So we're in this new era. So when Pentecost came 2,000 years ago, this unique event, was bringing about now what we call the age of the Spirit. Now the Spirit is going to move in a way that both convicts the world of sin and unrighteousness and draws people into the kingdom as one body. Now we're being drawn as one body. In other words, no longer will the people of God be marked by ethnicity, that I'm Jewish and I've been circumcised, but the people of God now are across cultures and languages and ethnicities. That the Spirit of God is gathering a people into himself The harvest is beginning, which was with Peter preaching. And it's been continuing of gathering a people into one. You know, a lot of scholars see here the the interesting contrast between Pentecost and if you remember in Genesis 10 and 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. So in Genesis chapter 10, you have the gathering of the nations and you have a people assembling themselves together with one intent to build a tower to be like God, the same thing that Adam tried to do, and God brought judgment by confusing the languages, and he stopped the work. God stopped it, but we see God building a different work in this new era He's now gathering the languages together he's now bringing people together one now we're no longer we're no longer kind of law-centered or law-directed, but was one scholar said we're now Christ-centered and spirit-directed. He's bringing together, he's unifying people now around the gospel through the Spirit of God. That marks the new era. We're now one in Christ. That's why Paul writes, it's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Greek nor Jew. We're all one in Christ. He's He's not eliminating distinctions. He's just showing that our oneness now is in the gospel through Christ. So that's the new era that he has come to bring, that the Spirit is now doing the work, gathering people unto himself into one body through the gospel by the power of the Spirit. The second thing you see in this text is that the coming of the Spirit validates Christ at the right hand of God. He he exalts Christ at the right hand of God. Look with me in verses 2, 3, and 4. In 2, 3, and 4, you see kind of what happened, right? It says, there suddenly. So God moves at his timing. We can't control. That's why we don't have revivals. We don't plan a revival that's going to take place in three weeks and God's Spirit's going to come. It says suddenly, or unexpectedly, the word could be. God's Spirit moves in the way that he moves. And John says the same thing in chapter 3. Uh, or Jesus says it, record it in John chapter 3, that the Spirit's like the wind, it comes, it blows. You don't know where it's going. You don't know where it's come from. God is sovereign over these things. But what we see in 2 and 4 is that suddenly, suddenly there came from heaven. So Luke wants us to know that this event that he's about to record was a unique event that has come from a divine source. You have a sound like a rushing wind. You have these divided Tongues as of fire, you have these strange utterances. What's happening here? Well, he's giving this verbal and this visual phenomena to show that now the Spirit has come and is filling these disciples. He's filling them, changing them. Well, What's the point? Well, we'll get to how it affects the disciples in just a moment. But I want you to know that the Scriptures promise this would be the mark that Jesus has ascended and is now seated at the right hand of God. We're gonna look next week at the sermon that Peter preached in chapter two, and let me draw a line from it. He says these words. He says in um, Acts chapter two, he says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying the fact that we have the Spirit of which we saw means that Christ has been exalted to the right hand. That means the church going forth in mission, we go forth in mission and we go forth bold as witnesses because we have a new error, the power of the Spirit's now bringing about salvation through conviction of sin, through regeneration of soul, but we also go forth in boldness because Christ is at the right hand. The church doesn't rest on methodologies. or The church doesn't rest on, well, this party is an office, so it's going to be better. The church doesn't rest on the idea that, well, the church is winning the cultural wars. You know, They may be right in terms of some level of engagement, but the reality of it is Christ being seated at the right hand is what gives us confidence that, yes, this is a venture, Of which we are excited to participate. In fact in Matthew 18. If you remember Jesus closing words in that gospel. He says that all authority in heaven and earth. Has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth. So you're not going to find a sphere. That he doesn't exercise authority. He says therefore go. And make disciples of all the nations. Go. You can only go. Because he now has authority. And is at the right hand. That needs to be meditated on and considered. If he has all authority, then I can have all boldness. If he has all authority, I can have all confidence. Not that it's going to turn out exactly the best for me in this temporal world, but I can go with all boldness, with all conviction and confidence. Okay, the third thing that we see is uh, that the coming of the Spirit equips the church with power. It equips the church with power. What happened to these men when it says they were filled with the Spirit? Well, it says that they were made bold. I mean, these were timid men, but now they're bold. They were filled with the Spirit. You notice that the evidence of the filling of the Spirit is that they spoke in other tongues. Now, let me try to wade into these waters quickly, try to get out before I lose a limb. But they spoke in tongues. Now, what does this mean? Well, I want to draw your mind back to chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, because in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, let me read the verse. It says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. When he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So you see in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that there is this idea of they're going to be baptized you see in verse 8 of the same chapter that they're going to receive power. And then you see in chapter 2, verse 4, that they were filled. So baptism and receiving and filling are all used synonymously. They're all used interchangeably. In other words, in this unique event, they were filled with the Spirit, they were baptized in the Spirit, and the evidence is in the tongues that they spoke. Now, for some of you, you've heard the idea of this Prayer language, that is, a person has been gifted by the Spirit of God to speak in another type of language that's not really understandable even to the speaker of it. And perhaps if, if you believe that, most people find their support for that idea in 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Paul calls these kind of angelic languages. They're not human languages. They're utterances of the Spirit, in a tongue that is not understood by the speaker. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is clearly they're speaking in known languages. We know that because in verse 5 it says they were bewildered that these men were speaking in languages, their native tongues. So it would be like me right now moving right into Italian. And those who can only speak Italian would say, he's speaking it perfectly. In other words, there's a missional push here that God is giving the gift of tongues not to establish a person with a certain prayer language, but for the but teaching these apostles, the word's going to go out to the world. All languages are going to hear the gospel. And that's what you see happening here when they were hearing the mighty acts of God in their own language. You see that power not just in the tongues, but in the boldness. The evidence of the Spirit is in the boldness. Peter, remember, he was the zero that became a hero. Here's where he became a hero. He became a hero because he left the upper room and they went right into the temple, which was the direct threat of the the Jewish leadership, and he began to preach boldly about the greatness of Christ. And he preached to all the nations. Now, here's what I want you to see about equipping the church with power and what Jesus was trying to show us. It says, or Luke says, that devout men from every nation of the world, every nation. Now, remember, the goal is to go into all the world. What's happening here is God, by giving them the power of the Spirit to preach to the nations, is showing them what will happen. God's Spirit gathered the nations to Peter so that he could preach to them. He's already showing what's going to happen. He gathers the nations to preach the gospel to them. They hear the gospel and take it back to the nations. So we already see, in a way, the end in the beginning. The Spirit gathering all the nations together to hear the gospel preached so they can take the message back to their own nation. So this is what this is the plan of God. This is the power of being a witness. He shows us right here in the idea that all the nations are here. Now, clearly, some were amazed, it says. Maybe they were of the 3,000. Uh, some mocked. They mocked. They, they attributed the power of God's spirit, and they gave it to the power of another spirit, wine. And, and it really does kind of show... Uh, that the disciples are walking into a sea of hostility. That you you have a gospel, but you will be mocked, and, and, and it will be made fun of, and it will be rejected. But let me tell you, because Christ is at the right hand, and the Spirit is now moving in this culture, in this world, it will go to the ends of the world. And so the takeaway, of course, regarding us, is that we need to be filled with the Spirit in the same way. Now let me explain that. You know, Jesus began ministering in Luke chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, began to preach. So so he was full of the Spirit. We're called to be full of the Spirit as well. Now remember, in Acts chapter 2, this is a unique event. You know, the book of Acts is kind of funny. You, You can't just automatically go to it and say, this is what we have to do because they did it. It's not prescriptive. Otherwise, you're going to read chapter 4 where everybody sold everything they had and gave it to the church. Anybody want to do that? You can line up right here. You know, oh, well, we, we, we don't want to follow that necessarily. So it's not immediately prescriptive. It's descriptive. It's describing what he did. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't prescriptive things in the book of Acts, but basically in chapter 2, he's describing a unique event, a unique event that was uh, important as he initiates this new era. So the Bible teaches uh, that baptism, now in Luke... Baptism of the Spirit, filling of the Spirit are used interchangeably. When you read Paul's letters, they're not. They're different. Baptism of the Spirit occurs at conversion. And the filling of the Spirit is what we now do day after day. We're seeking to be filled with God's Spirit. So you see, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14, Paul writes, having heard the word of truth, Having believed the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with the Spirit. So, so, so there, it's having heard the word of salvation, you were sealed with the Spirit. But not just that, in, in 1 Corinthians 12.3, he says this, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So the Spirit is the one who regenerates us so that we can believe. So we're baptized in the Spirit at conversion. But the the Christian throughout the life that he lives or she lives is to be filled with the Spirit. We're to ask God, God, fill me with the Spirit that I may have power to do what you call me to do. That we don't have the resources innate to us to be able to do it. And and, and this is very clear, Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, that we are to be filled with the Spirit. It's a passive command. We need Him to do it, but we're called to ask. And Jesus encourages us. Because in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, What father among you, what mother among you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so we want to ask. Now, when we ask to be filled with the Spirit, we're not looking now to speak in strange utterances. That was a unique event At the time to show that the mission would go to the nations. But what the Spirit does is it gives us boldness. It gives us confidence. It lets us experience the love of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about the filling of the Spirit being like the child who has his hand in his father's hand. And they walk blissfully down the road. The son of the daughter, holding the father's hand, loves the protection, the, the enjoyment, the passion of the father for him. There's this relationship that we have that, that our souls begin to burst with an awareness that God loves us. That's the evidence of the spirit. A boldness to share the gospel, that would be evidence of the spirit. A conviction of sin, a desire for heaven, as Nick pinch hit it for us today, which I appreciate. Uh, Nick was praying that we would love, we would love the return of Christ, even today. That's the, that's the evidence of God's Spirit being within us, that we love the nations, that we want people to know him. Those would be the evidences of the Spirit. The, the tongues that were here were for the purposes of showing all the nations will hear and understand. There will be, there'll be people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language around the throne. We need the Spirit. We need the Spirit. You need to be filled with the Spirit. For the power to be a witness in this place, in this time, local and global, we need the Spirit. Let me just close with what John Stott wrote about this in his commentary. It's very helpful. He says, Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the Spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the Spirit. No Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit. No effective witness without his power. As the body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. The spirit does not negate our role. It only makes it possible. So again, it doesn't negate our role, but it makes it possible. So join with me that we would pray for the spirit. Ask God. Say, God, would you fill me with your spirit? they may walk in the power that you so generously afford me. Now I'm going to ask Steve to come up, and he's going to share about being a witness in another part of the world. And then when he finishes, we'll pray together, and then we'll finish. Thank you.